Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 162, Friday 6th of November 2020. Mark, we've been celebrating here double donut days here in Melbourne, (laughs) double donuts, it's fantastic. So for those of you not in the know, double donuts are that we've had no new cases, zero new cases of coronavirus here in Victoria and zero deaths as well, Mark, so it's fantastic. So we're looking forward to potentially relaxing a little bit with some of the lockdown conditions and uh, I think the one that I'll be looking forward to is if they'll let us not make it compulsory to have the masks on in the open air mark because coming into our summer uh, and it's been a pretty warm day here today it will be a little bit tricky and hot and blustery underneath those masks mark so i'm hoping that they'll change in the next week or so to suggesting that perhaps we only have to wear masks when we're inside buildings and shopping centers etc so that's my news mark what have you been up to well, I've I've had a wonderful weekend away. I'm ha- I hate rubbing this in when you guys are stuck in. Here lockdown. we go. Here we go. <laughs> but we went up to uh, from Newcastle. We travelled the sixty odd kilometres up to Port Stephens, and Kate and I had a uh, a lovely afternoon, a lovely morning on Sunday, diving off the coast on an island, Broughton Island, famous <sighs> for the grey nurse sharks. We did see a few grey nurse sharks, as well as uh, all the other uh, rocky reefs fish and uh, crustaceans and animals that you frequently see at that place. So we had a great time, Brendan. Fantastic. That would be excellent. Did you take any photos, take your little underwater um, Olympus lens or not? I did not this time. A new location. And when I find one of this is one of the funny things about diving, Brendan, that I find when I am concentrating on getting photos, I burn through my air so much more quickly. Um, so I do often these days, particularly at a new site, a site that I'm unfamiliar with, I um I skip the camera for the first couple of dives so that I can get into a rhythm of steady breathing and buoyancy under the water. Sounds very meditative. <laughs> Sounds excellent. And speaking of meditative, um, you, you might be interested in the, the review I have shortly. But before that, um, the place to go is vetgurus.com and send an email to us, vetgurus at gmail.com. Easy, simple, and friendly. We, we won't bite and we'll reply to you. We re- try and reply to everybody. So, and we do reply to everybody, don't we, Mark? Um, country with one listener, Mark. We're getting through this list. Um, we've only got a, well, we've got about six to go, I think. Um, Zimbabwe is the next country that we only have one listener or subscriber in. So, so far, Mark, all these countries that we've given a shout out to where we've only had one listener, we've not had. Any of those ones <laughs> reply to us, unfortunately. So, I don't, what does that mean, though, Brendan? What yes, does it mean? That's right. it's, it's, I don't know what it means. It means they've only got one person there. And they're and, busy. 
and they're busy. They'd listened to us once and they thought, that's not for me. I'm out of here. And um, they haven't been telling their friends, obviously, because there's only one person in that country. So we'll read out another country next week and I will get very excited, Mark, when we do get a reply from one of these countries with one listener. And visit patreon.com, our little site where you can give us a couple of dollars to help support us. So you can visit that via vetgurus.com. Enough of that, Mark. I'm gonna, I've got a review for you. It's sat here right in front of you, Mark. And um, well, what does it say? It's a book, Mark. Um, and I haven't, we haven't discussed it, have we? This <laughs> beforehand. So um, this will be the I do, first I do, you're hearing. I do. One of the <laughs> one of my peculiar joys of um, of our our little uh, weekly discussion podcast um, is the way that you surprise me. Like there, there are many other things we prepare and discuss, but the reviews are always a bit of a out of left field. I don't quite know what you're going to say. I don't know whether I'm going to agree or disagree or whether I've listened or heard or read or Well, tasted. I don't know whether you can't agree or disagree with this one because you haven't read it yet, Mark. So I think you should read it. And just looking for the quote, the quote on the front of it, it says, beautiful. That's all it says, beautiful. And I think that probably summarises this book. And I have been churning through a fair number of books during the the lockdown. And uh, one of the other reviews that I'll have coming up soon is a seven a book of seven series, Mark, that I'm up to wow. number six of the seven, but I'm not going to jump ahead of myself. This one is a much shorter one that it only took me, what, half a day or a day to day to read. It's beautifully um, produced, beautiful little um, volume, and um, I think I saw a review of it in one of the, the local newspapers, Mark, um, fairly recently. And the title of the book is called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? It's exactly that. It's a very contemplative book. It's well, the crux of the book is it's it's a true story about this this writer, and it's won many awards. This particular book, um, even though it's only a very short book, is it's about the the writer was bed bound for several years with a with a very serious illness, which I won't chat about. It doesn't really give away anything, but it is sort of part of the the actual book, and she's. Stuck in bed and she literally cannot move. She's so weak um, for at least, what, a year or two and then she slowly gets up and about and very early on in that process, one of her friends gave her a little uh, glass bowl or terrarium and brought a, a, um, a wild snail um, into that terrarium and it's about her interaction with this wild snail and then she learns about snails and gastropods and she spends a lot of time trying to um trying to work out the life cycle of the snails and and becomes a, a bit of an expert on on these um this particular species of snails and she spent many tens if not hundreds of hours just looking over from her bed because she physically could not get out of bed and watching the snail do its thing mark so it's um it's actually i'd I, I thought it was a great book. I really, really enjoyed it. So The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tover Bailey. And it's, yeah, it's won several awards for, for writing, but it is based on her. And, to, and the good news is she does, um, not giving away the end, she does recover um, from her illness after she doesn't die. So it is a is an uplifting story. But it's a it's a lovely book and it's 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 um the paper's very it's a very tactile book as well. I 
really, really enjoy it. So thoroughly recommend it. And with books, I give a I sort of do a um, score out of forty mark for these based on based on the the not just the content, but how it makes me feel and um, um, how it looks and that, that um, the the physical um, production of the book. Um, so ten points for each, and I get, it's a solid thirty four and a half out of forty mark. I give this book. Wow. So, it's an excellent, um, excellent book, and I thoroughly recommend it. So, if you're feeling a bit, a little bit down, and you want something that's just very, very easy to read, but very beautifully written, and um, is um, just, it's a good book. It's a good read, and it is a good book. So, there you go. That's my review, Mark. When you first said it, Brendan, I thought you said the sound of wild snail eating, and ah, I had this yes. vision of a French restaurant. Oh yes, no. That's um, that might be part two now that she's recovered, but I, I don't think so. Because the, the good news is she spends um, and and it does well, giving away a little bit. It does reproduce, and she releases everybody back into the wild. Um, so it's a it's a feel good story there, Mark. Um, and funnily enough. Um, <laughs> I was um, laughing inwardly when we were allowed to go and visit my father-in-law and mother-in-law, so Annie's parents, and for the first time since lockdown, and Annie and her parents are, are keen gardeners, and Annie was um, spending several minutes talking about how she hates snails, um, and <laughs> that she's been trying. They're all eating her her vegetable patch and her, and and her little um, bushes and and trees, and um, I I was halfway through reading the sound of a wild snail eating, when they were um, mouthing off about snails. Um, so I, I stood up for snails. Um, I didn't stand on them. I stood up for the mark. So there you go. I'm proud. So that's my review. So um, let's jump into our news story. So we have a, a one H here, Mark. Do you want to take yours first, or do you want me to take mine? Um, I do want to take mine first, but I want to make sure that it's mine after the kerfuffle of the last few weeks. <laughs> yes. So your, yes, I, yours is about your dog doesn't like the look of you. That's um, your, your and story. I, and I took that a bit personally when you first <laughs> suggested it. But as the story in the pet industry news does point out, it's not. It's not directed at me personally. It's a generic thing that um, to dogs, the sight of another dog is much, much more exciting and much more important than the sight of a human. Um, and, of course, as humans, we do put ourselves at the centre of the universe and uh, we do think that our dog gets excited at the sight of our face. Um, but this recent research, uh, originally published in the Journal of Neuroscience, uh, demonstrated that dogs aren't wired to focus on human faces and the way they did it is, uh, is a little bit fascinating. They MRI'd um, the brain of both humans and dogs um, and showed them pictures of faces and the back of uh, heads of both dogs and humans. Um, and, uh, and, and it's interesting that the same brain region sparks when a, when a member of the same species comes into view which I suppose in a way is not that surprising, but it's um, it's an interesting analogy. But um, uh, while dogs do pay attention to human faces, it certainly was not nearly as stimulating and didn't stimulate the same part of the brain. I thought the most interesting part of the uh, experiment was that it took several months uh, before the experiment was started where they had to train dogs not to move um, during the you know, the MRI. Um, so trained 
the train dogs for these experiments. Um, they were happy volunteers. They weren't forced or restrained in any way, um, and they could leave the scanner at any time if they wanted, but that would have ruined the uh, that particular set of experiments. Yes. What do you think, though, Mark, overall? I think, I think it's a huge <laughs> amount of effort to find something that is, well, like, look, this is the way of science, isn't it, Brendan, that intuitively I would have thought these results were probably true, that dogs are more interested in dogs than humans, and humans are way less interesting by and large most of the time except when they provide food. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that it's that surprising. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I just wonder how they get funding. Yes, exactly. You know, uh, that's that's where that question came from. I would be thinking if I'm, uh, yeah, how would I pitch such a project to my supervisor? And uh, maybe they were a dog lover, Mark, and uh, that's how they managed to get it um, through. Although, yes, that's all I'm going to say about that one. My, my story is that scientists remove the first murder hornet's nest found in the USA. And I don't know whether you saw this on the television news mark i saw the little video of this and it was quite quite funny um which was a team of entomologists in full body protective gear vacuuming the asian giant hornets out of a tree in washington state in the usa and uh um you'll have to look it up mark if you haven't seen it the suits that they're wearing there it looks like something out of star wars <laughs> um, so they've been trying to they the the bit that really piqued my interest about this story was the agriculture department had spent weeks searching for and trapping the hornets um, because they'd put tracking devices on um, and looking a little bit like those microchips, um, like those little scanners. It'd be something that Microchips Australia probably will be um, promoting in the future. They could well well implant them because the damn hornets grow to six and a half centimetres long and so... That's little. right. That's right. And these little radio trackers that they've um, they they trapped earlier in the week, they they put them on three of them, and then they found the nest, um, and then they returned um, with this huge vacuum, Mark, and wearing all their their little suits. There, it looks like something out of the the space age. There, oh, I think there's a little couple of little pictures there that you can probably see in that article there, Mark, with the big vacuum tube. Of the hornet's nest. Um, so the real threat from Asian giant hornets, according to the article, is their devastating attack on honeybees, which is already under siege from other problems like mites and diseases and loss of food, etc. So a small group of the hornets can kill an entire honeybee hive in hours. And they've already destroyed six or seven hives in Washington State, officials said. So there you go. So, yes. So that's my little I was interesting, in- fun little story there, Mark. I was interested to read in that article that um, the murder hornets probably kill at most a couple of dozen people a year in Southeast Asian countries, um, but some are expert estimates far less, while the CDC in the US uh, reports that on an average of 62 people are killed by hornets, wasps, and bees typically in the US each year. So, so what are you trying to say there, Mark? I'm saying that the murder hornets are getting a bad rap, mate. Yes, yes, they are. Or are you saying something else about our friends in the United States? <laughs> I'm not saying t- today is not the day 
people will not realize because uh, we put this on the net on Friday, but it's immediately before the US election and I'm not saying anything as we record. Yes, we are recording this one a little bit early and um, so we can both sit back and, and watch the shenanigans happen with the US election and hopefully everybody over there is um, stay safe and there isn't any oppressed um, regardless of which way the election goes. That's the main thing that we, we're hoping for. Um, so... Yes, get out there and vote is what um, people are saying. So get out there and vote and then um, lock your doors um, would be my advice, I think. We just so I think our big brother over the Pacific is um, all okay after the, whatever happens over the next 24, 48 hours. We, we, we're thinking positive thoughts about our friends from the US. We certainly are. We certainly are. We have many, many friends over there. Um, so our main topic this week, Mark, well, it's really um, mini topics. It, it's some of the gear, and that's something that we're asked not infrequently. Um, what sort of gear or equipment is useful for exotic pet or initial pet practice? So I think we'll just rip through a bit of We just... Um, put together a little ad hoc list as we usually do off the top of our head without any um, thought about um, research and we're just going to run through a few of these aren't we Mark? Um, Before we do Brendan and- I've got to say one thing I wanted to yes. emphasize and that is that while I think this is a really important list and it's a cool thing for us to talk about it's not everyone who wants to get into avian or exotic animals the attitude is the first thing you just need to like look at some and of course the gear makes certain things much easier but i just wanted to emphasize that that's not the you know the first thing is just taking and most practices will have gear that you can adapt to individual circumstance um, and obviously it will be easier with more appropriate gear but don't let that be limiting your opportunities to look at these species that's my starting point brendan Absolutely. So number one, gear is a brain, I think is what you're saying there, Mark. Yes, I, I totally agree. My my first one is something really simple, and we have gone through a few of these previously, but um, we're just going to rip through through them again. They may be repeats from previous episodes. And, and one is surgical drapes, Mark, and, and I love the clear surgical drapes, which are basically just bits of plastic that are sterile, and we use them for all our exotic surgeries mark why because one they work too um you can see the animal um and you just cut a little hole in the middle of the drape and away you go um for your port for um where you're then attacking the animal with your surgical skills so that's my number one mark well i've got a bone to pick with you brendan i you told me this tip many years ago and i bought a whole bunch of clear plastic drapes but they were not the adhesive ones and without, this is my big tip with clear plastic drapes, you want to get ones that stick down. If you get ones that just float in the breeze, particularly if you're using bear huggers and stuff, they become intensely annoying. So uh, making sure you've got the ones that are a little bit sticky and will adhese. They help to hold the animal in place. They help to hold the ET tube in place. Um, they do. And I must admit, Mark, sorry to interrupt, I do have use the ones that don't stick at the moment and I have for a fair while, but I do have the sticky ones as well, which I tend to keep for those special cases. There you go. There's some, 
Some cases are more special than others, as we realise. And the special cases are particularly that I like to use those stick down ones. Um, Opsite is one of the brands yep, yep. Um, for the snakes and the reptile surgery because I just find it um, it's, it's good to sort of stick them to the table. Um, I use a little, um, well, let's jump on to, I'm, gonna, no, I'm not going to take number two because you need to take the next one. Oh, with the, the, no, go on. I've got no idea. Well, number two is heating. My, my, no, oh, next one is, and relates directly to that is the heating products for them. So keeping these animals warm um, both during surgery. And there's different systems. I use the hot dog heating system, which is a heat mat system. Um, and I presume you're using a bear hugger type system. Yeah, we're using a, a generic uh, hot uh, warm air blower with um, a series of uh, canvas um cushion-shaped underlays, um, yes. So um, uh, they're very effective at, um, at uh, keeping warm. And, and I have noticed an uptick in the number of, um, of uh, complaints that we see through our New South Wales Veterinary Board in uh, animals that have burns, thermal burns, from, um, from other heating formulations. So making sure you've got one that is not going to... Um, to burn the anaesthetised animal is critical. Absolutely, and I think that's making sure that you're using a, a good quality one. I mean, the, that hot dog system, for instance, I just recently purchased, purchased a few new blankets for it, which are attached to the main heating unit, and the blankets are several hundred dollars um, each. And the heating unit, I think, is like two two and a half thousand dollars um just for that so um some of those really cheap sort of basic warming heat pads you have to be really careful and i suppose the analogy i talk about with that is some of those horrible heat mats that people use in reptile enclosures that are cheap and nasty and end up causing thermal burns and speaking of heating enclosures mark i think you wanted to talk about heating in enclosures as being something that's useful I definitely do. Um, one of the things that uh, always strikes me about our unusual and avian patients is that um, they all, when they're ill, require some help with their thermoregulation. They are small, they have poor surface area to volume ratio, um, and they have high body temperatures or they're unable to maintain their body temperature easily. So you need to have some form of um, thermal support, whether that be, you know, the one that we use most frequently are um, infrared lamps um, arranged variously in, in our enclosures, in our hospital enclosures. Um, and they seem to provide an excellent, just as they do in reptile enclosures, an excellent gradient. And so if the animal can still thermoregulate, they'll move closer, like baby chickens and ducks under a light, or they'll move further away. You have to be particularly careful with very, very sick, debilitated animals whose thermoregulation will be out of kilter. And we have a couple of enclosures that are thermostatically controlled to have the whole enclosure uh, maintained at a particular temperature. Um, and they help us with those most debilitated patients. But making sure you've got some form of uh, thermal support for patients that are ill under medical care or recovering from anaesthetic is critically important with exotic patients. Excellent advice. And something not on our list, Mark, that made me think of then is um, an accurate thermometer to measure core body temperature. And one of the thermometers that I use in the clinic, um, especially for these critical patients, is the Vetronic 
thermometer made by the same company that makes uh, the ventilators for exotics, and it's a very accurate, tiny little probe, Mark, and it has a little flexible probe that fits on it as well. So um, I love that little Vetronic. Not that I use it a great deal, but for those prolonged surgeries are the ones um, that are in the hospital for prolonged length of time that we're worried about those core body temperatures. That's ex- an excellent one to use. And it's also good to have uh, the, the infrared thermometers to yes. you know, double check the surface temperature of a recovered patient or the temperature within the enclosure because we certainly have had thermostats um, tell us that the temperature should be a particular level and it's not. So um, multiple thermometers are a good starting point to th- support the thermoregulation of your unusual and exotic patients. Yes, and it's something I recommend to all my reptile enclosure, reptile owning clients to purchase one of those infrared thermometers because then they're fun to use, aren't they? And they're fairly cheap these days, tens of dollars instead of thousands of dollars where they used to be when they were first um, being produced. And they'll use them because they're fun to use. They open up the little um, glass doors of their vivarium and they enjoy pointing the little laser dot around the enclosure to measure those temperature gradients. Particularly the ones shaped like a gun. You feel like they're fun. That's right. Just keep them away from from eyes mark keep them away from eyes um what's our next one i think you're next mark with a, a little piece of equipment that's commonly used um that's um promoted or, or sold by one of our sponsors mark. oh we, we're we're not following our list very closely but i wanted no, to um it's a really interesting thing for me because um we've got the lone star retractor system and i use it pretty much every time I get into a uh, surgery for a, a, uh, a small mammal or a reptile or bird, particularly my birds, um, and it definitely enhances my um, access and means that uh, that I'm not making as big an incision. Um, but I find that that's not a universal, you know, uh, there, there are other vets I work with who are much happier not to have the... the, um, the uh, Lone Star retractor over their surgical site. Um, and so I think it is a bit of a, you know, the more experience you get with them, the more useful you will find them. And I even use them now with, uh, you know, um, in my small animal surgery with cats and dogs doing, um, you know, perineal surgery or, um, or procedures that require um, more delicate restraint, uh, rest- you know, uh, uh, tissue held back um, than... Um, uh, retracted from the surgical site than the usual instruments can provide. I've, I've been using it all the time, Brendan, so I think it's one of the things I would strongly recommend anyone doing surgery on our exotics get a hold of and get experience with early. Yes, and I'm one of those people who don't use it enough. <laughs> but every time I do pull it out and say, look, I should use the Lone Star, why didn't I use this for the last 10 surgeries? Yes. <laughs> so the next one is a ventilator, um, which we obviously need to use for our reptiles or our birds um, because if we're not using a ventilator, we need to manually um, bag them or manually ventilate them. Having said that, it, I, I would put this one on a almost like a luxury list, Mark, um, because probably at least half my 
veterinary career, I did not have a ventilator and I did many hundreds, well, many thousands of, of reptile surgeries, especially over that time without a ventilator. And I just had a, an assistant ventilating the animal. But um, they are certainly very useful. And, and the one that I use, I think, is probably the brand new use, which is a UK-made Vetronics brand. And um, I recently replaced it um, because it finally died after about 14 years um, and I think we reviewed it fairly recently in a podcast. So that's um, the next one, Mark, ventilators. What else have we got on our list for exotic animal equipment? Well, I think this is another one where there's not many things that are different between the way you and I practice, but um, uh, the hemoclips, ligoclips, the um, the little stainless steel staple-like structures that uh, that you can use in surgical procedures to clamp uh, blood vessels, um, I find them exceedingly useful and they uh, generally um, speed up my surgical procedures dramatically. There are circumstances where I find them frustrating to use, particularly in those rabbits and rats that have huge amounts of fat in uh, in maybe the mesometrium or um, you know the, the the whatever suspensory tissue holding the organ that you might be doing surgery on. You just cannot dissect out the pedicle, for example. But in lean animals, they definitely make it um, massively easier for me. And they're probably the uh, tools I use most frequently when I'm desexing birds um, to clamp off the the blood vessels to the. Um, the uh, the oviduct and make sure I don't have a bleeding bird, Brendan. Yes, I, I use the Ligoclip brand. So the two different competing brands, the Hemoclips and Ligoclips, and basically they do the same same sort of um, process there, a, a titanium or, or a stainless steel um, clip or staple. And, yes, I use my Ligoclips for many, many, many surgeries every every day, if not every week, I'm using the Logo Clips and they're a great time saver and um, they're, they're fantastic. I love them. What else have we got? I think I'm taking the next one. Um, I'm going to go with ET tubes, Mark, and, and masks. So that includes commercial endotracheal tubes, um, the Cook-type brand and variations thereof for intubating those little critters, Mark, whether it's a, a bird a reptile, um, or even our small mammals. Um, so a lot of the time we end up we end up sort of making up ET tubes out of all sorts of things, don't we? Including large <laughs> large ball catheters. Um, I call you I call you the MacGyver of ET tube <laughs> construction. Well, I'll tell you what I've missed, Mark, is down here in, in Victoria, Bunnings, which is our hardware store, our big box store, they call them in the States, um, has been off limits unless you were a person from a trade, a plumber, an electrician, etc. So you could have home delivery, but um, I missed it very much during lockdown um, when we had many, many weeks where you couldn't visit Bunnings and and uh, I would spend many hours going up and down the aisles of Bunnings and looking for bits and pieces. And one of the things that um, I still use is uh, a particular type of, of um wire hay wire mark or or, 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 or baling wire um, made for hay baling um, that I found in one particular section and I use those for stylets in our, in my small A2 tubes and they work fantastic as a stylet to help in keep that stu- tube a little bit stiff when I'm intubating rabbits for instance so yes so we 
make up a lot of little masks as well. Same story. Um, little little um, drink bottles with with a surgical glove can be a simple apparatus where we just put punch a little hole in it and that will cover over the the face of that that um, little animal. So yes, um, ET tubes and masks, etc., are certainly required um, for and they don't um, for exotic pet medicine and they don't cost much. A lot of these because you make them up. <laughs> <laughs> what have we got um, next, Mark? Well, my next one, um, it, I've made, I think I made a, a big step in my surgical technique when I got uh, a, a set of instruments that were, you know, does, they were essentially ophthalmic instruments, I think, for the large part. A few um, uh, um, micro-surgical instruments uh, designed for human practice. But once we had that kit of very, very small instruments, it made tissue handling and um, surgery on very small patients so much easier and uh, and I became much more confident and, you know, even approached bog-standard um, levels of success uh, um, once I once I had the appropriate instruments. Now, this doesn't mean, Brendan, that um, with with you know the the small spay kit that has relatively small hemostats that you can't do those procedures on um, on uh, most exotic animals. It just makes it so much easier to have a kit that's dedicated to that stuff. And it often makes surgery a pleasure, doesn't it, when you have everything in its place and everything correct. Um, and I find I find a lot of surgeries fairly fairly relaxing these days um, for even some of the more more complex ones. Um, just you've, you've get got, in the zone. You've got so zen and meditative. The books you read, <laughs> the surgery you do. Perhaps. Okay, so the next one is, uh, it is, I'm going to jump to, I'm going to jump to right down the list, Mark, down to the third last one, reptile probes um, for sex determination primarily, primarily in snakes, but we sometimes um, use them in, in lizard species as well. And you can buy these off the internet, a little um, set of reptile probes. There's a varying quality of them, so I think you have to be a little bit careful about uh, which ones you purchase. Some of them, the best ones I think are the ones that have a, obviously a blunt um, or a rounded or even a ball-type tip on the end, um, stainless steel. So when you are inserting those those probes in the backside region of the reptile to determine the sex of the animal, it is not causing any trauma there. Um, and the only other tip I tend to do, um, to, to recommend to vets who are inexperienced with um, probing snakes especially is um, don't try and convert a female into a male um, so be very gentle there um, with 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 probing them so reptile probes mark i reckon the big tip for me what made me feel much more confident is not to put your finger over the end of the probe um, so if you just hold the probe between your thumb and forefinger um, and roll it gently then if the snake moves a particular way if it's muscular um, and moves a particular way it can't the probe will slam it down yeah exactly so don't put your finger over the end um That's I, right. my next one I is, do remember that <laughs> my my um next one is illumination and magnification it all fits with the whole you know um, the pattern of talking about surgery with the retractors and the instruments, the drapes. I really uh, um, 
I really noticed about the time I turned 44 that my vision just in a few weeks went to crap. I'd, I'd um, been hassling my first boss, um, you know, when I first got my first job as a new graduate at how bad his vision was, only to be struck by the karma bus when I turned 44 to end up with a horrible vision. And I find with magnification and appropriate illumination, one of those uh, surgical loops um, that uh, that are relatively freely available now, um, that that makes a world of difference. And particularly with many of the surgeries we do, you're looking down into a bit of a hole. So even your normal surgical uh, illumination is not going to provide enough light for um, the relatively small opening you have in an animal. So something on your head, that you can move around a little bit and some magnification makes a world of difference to those surgical procedures and can put you in the zen zone like Brendan. That's right. The zen zone is good. Recovering those animals once you've done that surgery, Mark, is is particularly important for unusual pets because I think there is an increased percentage of of deaths in uh, these small mammals especially um, compared with other species in that immediate post-operative period so it's things like critical care and other recovery type foods mark um, that we require for our small mammals and our birds especially so you need to have some of them on hand um, to make sure that you're getting some nutrition into them fairly quickly after they've recovered from that anesthetic and Again, a shout out to another one of our sponsors, um, and that is um, the wonderful Jen from Small Animal Nutrition, Oxbow Australia, and the Oxbow range of products. Um, And you also need to have some similar sort. What are the ones that you would have on hand that you most commonly reach for for the birds, Mark, if you you, um, were suggesting to somebody um, who... Sees the occasional bird and wants to increase the birds um, that they house in their practice. What two or three products would you recommend for supportive care? We like the um, the Vetafarm. They have a critical care recovery food for birds. It's very similar to the hand rearing mix, um, but has a few more di- easily digestible energy sources in it. Um, and it also comes with um, you know the usual array of uh, gut flora promotants, the probiotics. Um, so that's the main one we, uh, um, you know, it's good to store because it comes as a powder. You mix it up with some warm water um, and you can, um, you can deliver it to um, birds regularly. We also use the Vetafarm electrolyte um, uh, product uh, for birds that whose digestive system may not be well primed but need to be rehydrated and and still can we can deliver that to the crop um, and of course both these things Brendan when you one of the things that makes it much easier to work with <coughs> birds during recovery um, are crop needles so just like your stainless steel um, uh, uh, um, probes for your snake. Yes. I think an array of crop needles um, is an exceptionally useful thing to have. It's important to develop the appropriate skills, and there's a number of um, uh, YouTube videos, uh, particularly from uh, Vetafarm, that uh, I've used a number of times to guide people. Um, but um, those crop needles allow you to safely deposit uh, that uh, critical care um, feed electrolytes or even medication into the ingluvies of the bird um, and uh, and um, 
and that can make a huge difference to the rate of recovery. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, what have we got left, Mark, here on our quick little list here that we've um, put together in no time at all? I well, think we was- just about covered everything. Milk replaces? Um, you wanted to talk about milk replaces, is that correct? No, I didn't. I thought okay. I did, but I changed my mind. <laughs> my, last, my last one was um, resources. I think um, one of yes. the things um, that I would suggest uh, uh, to anyone interested in this stuff is to get connected. Um, and in the modern day, um, getting involved in Australia here in the um, unusual pets and avian vets special interest group of the AVA um, or even just, you know, Get your boss to pay for a subscription to VIN um, and uh, make sure you haunt the boards there. They're full of um, both Australian and international experts in this area, and it's a huge resource. And I think that connectivity and access to resources, that builds confidence and allows you to look forward to taking on those new patients, new conditions and new surgical procedures with some degree of confidence, Brendan. Excellent. Let me turn myself off mute as usual. You beat me to it. I could hear you wrapping up there, but sometimes I'm a little bit slow on just um, taking a little sip of water. If you hadn't said anything, no one would have noticed. (laughs) I don't know whether that's um, a compliment or not, or a backhander. Well, there's a well. There's a bit of a list of some of the um, equipment and the ways we operate as unusual and exotic pet vets, Mark. So hopefully, some of that may be a little bit of a a little bit of a um, help to some of the vets out there. And we'd be very interested to see if there's some obvious things we've missed. And I'm sure there's lots of things that are popping into people's head about, um, gee, I can't do without X particular product or Y product. Um, If you do, send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com and let us know what it is that we need to chat about and we'll add it into the next podcast. And I think with that, the outro man's here and we better get out of here. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.